Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. Active shooter events continue to escalate across the nation. Experience has proven that no industry or no location is immune to risk. Joining us today is Steve Wilder, Chief Operating Officer at Sorensen Wilder and Associates in Bradley, Illinois, and a nationally recognized expert in active shooter and workplace violence issues in healthcare. He is here to help identify the steps in developing an active shooter plan for your facility, explain the four outs that are available to a healthcare facility as options during active shooter event, and identify common resources needed for recovery assistance after an event occurs. So, Steve, welcome to First Talk Compliance. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. It's always great to come back on with your listeners. Thank you. So, Steve, what is the first thing a facility or business needs to do to prepare for an active shooter? Oh, wow. This is going to sound so elementary, and I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence, but having worked with so many companies now that have had these events and having heard one thing more than anything else is that I never thought it would happen here first thing they have to do is accept the fact that it can happen anywhere. There is no business, there is no industry, there is no location that is immune from it happening. It can happen to you. A lot of people, I'm sure, don't have a plan because people don't really think that it can happen to them. So if they don't have a plan, how do they start to develop one? Well, you hit the nail on the head. They don't think it could happen to them, so it's not something they're all too worried about. Right. Uh, Yeah, and we tell everybody, you know, think about your emergency operations policy book your EOP, emergency operation plans, right? You've got fire plans, you've got loss utility plans, you've got weather emergency plans. You've got all those plans in place. You practice them, hopefully, you train on them. Uh, if not, you pray that ocean never walks in and audits you. But you, you, you've got all these plans in place that you might probably, probably can go a lifetime and never use. Active shooter is no different. It's a new facet, but it's still part of our EOP, still part of our emergency operations plan, that we have to put a good plan in place and we have to practice it. Now, to do that, typically when we're going to do that, the first thing I always tell people, if you're putting together a plan, make it specific to you. It has to be specific to your facility. You know, you, you can go out on the internet and you can find all kind of prepackaged plans that you can go out and buy for 199 bucks. All I've seen them all the way up to 12, 1300 bucks, right? I, I'm not a fan. I'm not going to tell you don't do it, but I'm not a fan. Those are put together to do one thing, make money for somebody. Right? You need a plan that is specifically written for you because that company that's out there marketing the, the end-all plan is marketing and they're trying to sell it to you as a healthcare facility. And they might be putting the same plan out there uh, for manufacturing, uh, for car sales, for sports complex, whatever. They're trying to sell the same thing across all lines with different covers on it. And that just doesn't work well. So first thing you want to do is make sure you're developing a plan specific to your facility. Even if you're part of a larger healthcare system, None of your two facilities are the same. So the plan that may work for your location on the east end of town probably isn't going to work at your location on the west end of town or two towns over or two states over, whatever the case may be. All right. Each of you are different. Your culture is different. Your neighborhoods are different. Your geographics are different. Your your uh, environments are different. Your crime in the neighborhood is different. Your plan has to be specific to you. You also have to make sure you remember to write your plan with your patients, your residents in long-term care in mind. But you also have to have your employees in mind. If you have an event, 
you're not only going to have other regulatory agencies and law firms and insurance and blah, blah, blah. You're going to, if an employee gets injured, you're going to have OSHA there. And OSHA is going to want to look at your plans and they're going to look at them with as much as aggressively as anybody else is. But OSHA is going to be looking at them. They could care less about your patients, your residents, or anyone else. They're strictly looking for your employees. And they're going to want to see that your plan addressed your employees as well as everybody else. So you've got to put together a plan that addresses resident safety or patient safety, visitor safety, vendor safety, and employee safety. It's challenging. It can be difficult to develop a plan. I understand why a lot of companies will turn to these prepackaged plans because it's so much more simplistic, but it's probably not going to work for you when it happens because it's not a plan that's written for you. So where then should they start if they don't start with one of these prepackaged plans? Well, it, it starts, Catherine, with what we call a security vulnerability assessment or an SVA. An SVA is a systematic process where a qualified security professional will look at your facility and their focus is to identify where there are opportunities for a bad guy to strike. I tell my clients all the time when we're doing SVAs for them, we're good guys who get paid to think like bad guys. An SVA looks at three things. It looks at the threats. What are the threats that you face that could result in an event? It looks at the vulnerabilities. What are the vulnerabilities? Think of vulnerabilities as the chinks in the armor that would allow it specifically to happen at your place. Some examples may be doors that are open too late. You know, we got 25 perimeter doors on this hospital. 15 of them are open at 10 o'clock at night. Why are 15 perimeter doors open at 10 o'clock at night? That's 15 doors that a, that a bad guy could get in and we'd never know he was there. I'll backtrack for a minute. I mentioned threats. Threats are going to be the things that are out there that put you in harm's way. You may live in a, your hospital may exist. You're in a neighborhood that has a high crime rate. You may have an employee who's going through a divorce and soon to be ex has said, you know, if I can't have her, nobody's going to have her. And I have no problem with coming in there and killing everybody to get to her. And these aren't made-up scenarios. These are events that have happened. These are events from, from companies that I've worked with now or that we've worked with over the years that have had these kind of things. So first thing is, what are the threats that could bring it into our building? Second thing is, what are the chinks in the armor that could allow it to happen here, what we call the vulnerabilities? And the third thing is, what are the risks? And here we talk about risks. We're talking about potential outcomes. If it does happen, what are the potential outcomes? And, you know, when I talk about risks and, and outcomes, you know, think of it in simplistic terms. If I smoke cigarettes, I risk lung cancer as an outcome. If I don't wear a seatbelt, I risk serious injury if I'm in a traffic accident. So when I talk about risks here, I'm talking about outcomes. So the, the vulnerability assessment is a starting point because that's our opportunity to identify where the potential exists for it to happen in our place. Once we know that, we can put steps in place to minimize the risk of it happening. So that's the first step. Once we've done that, once we know where those threats are at, once we know where those vulnerabilities are at, we can minim start putting plans in place to minimize the threat. You know, we can change the times we lock the doors. We can improve lighting. We can improve communication systems, whatever the case may be. Second step then is to start developing that active plan. Now, we talked about it briefly already, Kev. We want to start developing a plan that is specific to our location. And that's great because putting that plan together is a critical component. I'm not a big fan of one individual sitting at a desk writing a plan. This is something I would much rather see being addressed by a committee or a task force or something like that. I'm a big fan of giving this to the safety committee. Or a lot of places will have a workplace violence committee that will be dealing with active shooter planning. And that's great, too. But we need to write a plan, as I already mentioned, that addresses resident patient safety, visitors, vendors, employees, right? just about anybody that's in the building. And we need to write the plan that's specific to our location. That's number two. 
Number three, after we've written the plan, we need to test it. We need to do what we call a tabletop exercise. For a tabletop exercise or discussion-based exercise, what we actually do is we create an imaginary situation. An individual walks into the emergency room at 9 p.m., is upset because his mother died in the emergency room a month ago. He feels the ER didn't treat him properly, and he draws a gun and points it at the triage nurse. Okay, what do we do? Great. Then we have a response protocol, What do we? and we follow our plan. Remember, when we're doing a tabletop exercise or discussion-based exercise, we're not testing our people. We're testing our plan. So we do this, and we stair-step the situation. Okay, great. He pointed a gun. How do we respond? Right. And then after we've responded initially, according to our plan, we'll go to the next step. Now he's forced that triage nurse and two other people who are at the triage desk into a room. He's barricaded himself in that room. Nobody's called the police yet because nobody realized it's happened yet. There's no communication in the room, blah, blah, blah. We just keep building a scenario. And then Mm -hmm. we use our plan to walk us through how to manage it. And typically what happens is the first time we go in, we think, boy, we've written a really good plan. And by the end of that tabletop exercise, we're going, boy, did we screw this up. And that's great. That's what we're doing it for. We want to test our plan because now we can take that plan that we found out we need to do some tweaking to. We can take it back to the committee, to the office, whatever, and rework it, tweak it, make the changes we identified needing to be made. And we go back and test it again, create a new situation, go back and test it. And we just keep repeating that until we know that we've got a plan that's going to work the way we want it to. Then once it does that, we can start going in and testing using the hands-on components, using the people, getting in, doing our functional exercises and our full-scale exercises. You know, we're at the third step now. We do a security vulnerability assessment. We develop the plan. We exercise the plan with tabletop exercises until we have it right. Now we can roll it out to the, to the staff. Now we know we've got it right. We can roll it out to the staff and we do training programs. And we need to do training programs in the didactic sense, meaning we bring them into the classroom and do the training. But now that we know the plan's going to work and we tested it with tabletop, we can start doing some exercises also. And the exercises, that's the hands-on where we're going to start out. We'll do uh, what we call functional exercises first where we break it into bite-sized pieces and we test it component by component. Today we'll test the communications component. Tomorrow we'll test the evacuation component. The next day we'll test the employee accountability uh, component. So we're testing them all one at a time, make sure they work. Same logic again. If it doesn't work, fix it and retest it. And and then we uh, can go now to the next step where we can do the full-scale exercise. And that's a community-wide. That involves police, fire, EMS, outside resources, making sure your vendors, your supply vendors, all those people... You don't necessarily have to drag them all into the building, but at least making sure that they know you're doing it and that they are are participating, if nothing else, by telephone. And then the final component of it is to build a recovery plan. The recovery plan is there to help us move on after the event. And recovery is the often the forgotten part, Catherine. And just too often, you know, we, we, we go in and we exercise and we train. Think about your fire drills. We have a fire drill. What do we do? I'll walk up to some unsuspecting employee in the hallway and I'll say, excuse me, partner, but I'm Steve. I'm the safety guy. And you've just walked into this room and discovered a fire. What are you going to do? And he's going to regurgitate the fire plan and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to activate the fire alarms and all the employees are going to come running with a fire extinguisher, just like the plan says. And when everybody gets there, I have a little two-minute tailgate talk with them about fire safety. And then we send them back to work. We never address recovery. And here we have to address recovery because recovery is going to be critical. I mean, if they're an active shooter, pardon my language, but your employee in your facility has just gone to hell. Literally, your employees are broken. Patients are broken. 
building is broken. Right. Yeah. We seldom talk about recovery. We've talked about preparation and response and mitigation and everything, but we don't really talk about recovery very much. No, we don't. And it needs to be talked about because, you know, the sun's going to come up tomorrow, but it's going to come up to a different world for you. And, and again, I'm saying this from experience. I haven't worked with so many companies that have been through this now. What was normal yesterday will never be normal again tomorrow. Normal's going to have to be redefined. The culture of the organization is going to have to be redefined. If we're talking about training, I know that a lot of people are reluctant to train because I know it, it's scary for a bunch of people. But so if they're reluctant to train, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. It, it is scary. And, and people don't like to do it, you know, because I've heard we don't want to scare people. We don't want to alarm people. We don't want people to think that uh, this is not a safe place to be. You know, and I try to remind them, all you got to do is turn on the news any given day. And we hear about these incidents. People know that it can happen there. They don't want you ignoring it. They want you preparing for it and training for it, just the same as they want you preparing and training if there's a fire. Nobody wants to die in a fire. They want you and they trust you when they turn their care and custody over to you of themselves to be ready for emergencies. So you've got to train for this. Right? The other thing, too, though, is everyone has to participate. Right? That starts with the administrator, that starts with the executive director, everybody in the C-suites, all the way down to the newest hire. Everybody has to participate because we don't know where in the building it might happen. We don't know when it might happen. We don't know who's going to be in charge. And there's nothing more more damaging and nothing more uh, detrimental to a, a successful outcome than having employees go through a planning program, a training program, that says, here's what we do if it happens, practice it, practice it, practice it. And now we get somebody who didn't go through the training because they were too busy that day. And they're telling people to do things that are completely the opposite. Now the staff doesn't know who to listen to, what to do, or what's going on. Right. Other thing I got to mention, I've said OSHA. If an employee is injured, OSHA is going to be there. And OSHA is going to want to see, again, they could care less about anybody except employees. They're going to want to see the training records that your employees have been trained in this. You can't say, Mr. OSHA surveyor, I didn't know this was a risk. Yes, you did. We all do. Everybody in, in the United States knows that it's a risk now. right? So you've got to be planning for it. And part of what OSHA requires is not just planning it, but they want to see that you're training it and that you're evaluating your preparedness. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Steve Wilder, Chief Operating Officer of Sorensen, Wilder & Associates. Run, hide, fight is taught in many facilities. How does that program work? Run, hide, fight is a fantastic program. Run, hide, fight was never intended for healthcare. Run, hide, fight is a program that focuses on, it allows me as an individual capable of self-preservation to potentially survive an incident. It tells me as a competent adult, if I'm in the building and we have an armed intruder, an active shooter, I should either run, hide, or fight. The focus is on me worrying about me. Healthcare is a different baby. In hospitals, we don't just have to worry about me. We have to worry about people who can't take care of themselves just as well. At that moment, if we leave them, they're totally vulnerable. You run out on that elderly patient in the geriatrics unit. You run out on a patient who's on a ventilator. You run out on a patient in the ortho unit who's, you know, in a, is casted and can't move or is in traction and can't move. You run out and leave those patients. They're vulnerable. They have no way of protecting or defending themselves, right? Shooter comes in that unit. They're perfect targets of opportunity. 
we advocate, and, and we've used a national model now that is basically run, hide, fight on steroids. And we've specifically tailored it for use in healthcare facilities. Right? Um, we call it the four outs, right? The four outs is very similar to run, hide, fight. Get out, which is run. Hide out, which is hide. Keep out, which run, hide, fight really doesn't address. And take out, which is fight. And it really focuses on Number one, how do we apply those theories, run or get out, hide out, keep out, take out in a healthcare facility? You know, you, you think about our buildings, you think about our hospitals, our, our patient care areas. There's no lock on the door. If I've got a patient in that room and I can't lock the door, I better have some other plans on how I'm going to protect that patient. You think about our fire doors in the hallways. Right? We're very unique. Right? Those fire doors are held open by magnetic hold-open devices. Fire alarm sounds or something like that, and those doors close. When they close, they don't lock. We can't do anything to secure, to protect, to keep the bad guy out. So we got to come up with creative ways to keep them out as well. And we have to think about how do we make that decision about when do I worry about my patients and protecting them? When do I worry about myself and protecting myself so I can take care of my patients? These are things that Run High Fight does teach. I'm, I love Run High Fight. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, mm -hmm. I've had conversations with uh, the folks from the city. Run High Fight was produced by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the city of Houston, Texas Police Department. I've talked with the, the uh, city of Houston PD. I've talked with their um, public relations people that produce Run High Fight, and we're in total agreement with each other's programs. Uh, they are actually using our four outs program now for all the healthcare facilities in Houston. Uh, and we use run, hide, fight for all of our non-healthcare clients that we work with. So, you know, it's, it's respecting what one another are doing, but knowing that it's designed for different uses. If there's ever a shooter in one of our listeners' building, what should they do? Um, how do they respond? First of all, believe it's a shooter. And, and as elementary as that sounds, Catherine, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to, to folks who have been involved in these things. Uh, and everybody says the same thing. Well, I thought it was a car backfiring or, you know, I, I thought somebody lit a firecracker. You know, we don't want it to be a shooter. So in our minds, we automatically make it anything other than. But in today's world, if it sounds like a gunshot, you've got to treat it like a gunshot until you know otherwise. You have to think survival. It's just the world we live in today. I'm sorry, but that's just the reality of it. I'd love to tell you that assume it's a firecracker. But, you know, realistically, when was the last time somebody shot off a firecracker in your building? Never. All right. But we want mm -hmm. it to be something other than that. So number one is to believe it is gunshots until it's proven otherwise. When you hear it, first thing you can do, first thing you should do, make a determination. Where am I in relationship to the sound of that gunfire? That's going to tell you, you know, your program is going to be built. Your plan is going to be written with options. As I said, we use the four outs, right? That's four options that you've got there. If I'm sitting here and I'm on the first floor and I hear sh what sounds like maybe a gunshot or gunshots, plural, on the third floor, that's a distance away. I've got time to start getting people out, get them outside, get them away, run, 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 go to the designated reunification point that we identified in our plan, but get out, run, go. I've got time. The shooter's not near me, so I can get people out. I can move them out. Everybody that gets out that door lessens the chances of being a victim significantly, almost guarantees they'll survive. But if the shots sound like they're close to me, 
if I run out, I might run right into the shooter and now I'm a casualty. So now I got to go with the other plans. I got to go with the uh, hideout. I got to go with keep out if I'm in a room with no locks, if I need to barricade or build walls of obstruction in front of the doors or whatever I've got to do to protect myself, roll the beds over in front of the door and lock the wheels or whatever. Uh, knowing, you know, you've got the options, but knowing where the shooter is at in relationship to where you're at in the building uh, becomes, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the most critical things because it dictates what decision to choose. The other thing is what we call uh, the STAF protocol, STAF, which is the acronym for the Safety Transition Adjustment Formula. And I mentioned uh, the concept a few minutes ago. The STAF protocol is what I use, just what the name says, it's a safety transition, transitioning between patient safety and my own safety. You know, one of the things you have to accept is if something happens to you, there's nobody to take care of your patients. So there's going to come a time when keeping yourself safe is the most important thing. Because if you're not safe, they're all vulnerable and they're all targets of opportunity. So when we talk about knowing where in the building the shots are coming from in relationship to where you're at, if they're a distance away, you've got time to, you know, you may not be able to evacuate patients out of the building, but you, you can plan ahead and know what rooms you can lock people in. I've got my medication rooms. I've got my janitor's closets. I've got my utility closets. I've got my uh, uh, medication rooms. I've got all these record rooms, different places that I can put people in that does have locks on the doors that I can lock the door, turn off the lights, and try to keep everybody quiet, and maybe the shooter won't find us. Right? I can do all that because there's distance between us and there's time on my side. When that shooter's right outside in the hallway, though, i got to keep myself alive because if if he takes me out, nobody's going to take care of my patients. You know, when in the in, and I come with a fire service background, in the fire service, we always ask one question, you know, Hollywood makes it out that we save everybody. But the reality is that doesn't always happen. And we always have a little credo, who's going to rescue the rescuers? And the same thing applies here. If, if you allow yourself to be put in harm's way, Who's going to take care of them when you're not there to? The safety transition adjustment formula is used for transitioning between patient safety and self-safety. But, you know, it's something that's critical to know and understand when you've got to decide between the two. Mm. Okay. So, Steve, you mentioned recovery. It seldom gets talked about. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we need a recovery plan is what it boils down to, Catherine. You know, this incident will end. How it ends is not necessarily in our control, but it will end. And as I said earlier, the sun will rise tomorrow and a new day will dawn. We've got to move on. We're going to have to deal with this incident, but there's going to be a future still. And we've got to recover from this. Your world's changed. Your culture's changed. Your reputation's changed. Everything you knew has changed forever now. You have changed forever. Think about if it happens. So imagine it happens in your building. What are some of the resources you're going to need? We've mentioned a lot of them already. I already said, you know, your employees, your staff, their world has changed forever. They're going to need counseling. They're going to need debriefing. They're going to need post-traumatic stress help. You know, you're going to need a good crisis counseling group to work with you. You're going to have gapers. If you don't have a good, trained, professionally trained security department, you're going to probably need to bring some additional security in to help you because people are going to want to get on your land and see what's going on and you want to keep them off, it may still be treated as a crime scene. You need to make sure that the people are off, so you may need security. Without a doubt, you're going to be plagued by plaintiff's attorneys trying to get in and pass out business cards. So we're going to need to make sure that everything we do, our defense attorneys are working with us. We're going to want our insurance 
carrier notified immediately because they're going to want their claims people in. They're going to want their risk management consultants in. They're going to want their uh, their lawyers involved as well. We're going to have the media driving us crazy. They're going to want statements. They're going to want interviews. And you better have something to tell them. But you also have to be sensitive because you can't sit there and tell them something that's in the end of, at the end of the day shooting yourself in the foot. So we always advocate you have a good public relations firm or marketing firm that will work with you on responding to the media and putting together prepared statements. You may have, you know, you, you could conceivably after something like this, uh, and, I, and I don't want to be uh, obscene or vulgar here, but you could conceivably have a lot of biohazard issues to deal with and structural damage to deal with where you have to relocate people outside the building. You may very well need to make sure you've got something set up for transportation needs. The issue you run into with this, Catherine, the reason recovery is such a critical component, those seven things I think I just mentioned are critical yet emergent at the same time. I've got to have a relationship with a provider for each one of those. So when I call them at midnight and wake them out of a sound sleep, they're not saying, "Uh, I'm sorry, this is who from where? They're saying, hey, Steve, sorry this has happened. I'll have a crew there in an hour whether it's mm-hmm. crisis counseling, you know, and the, and the other thing I didn't mention, I, I mentioned uh, biohazard. What about cleanup and restoration, right? You've got a crime scene. You're going to have, again, I'm trying to be gentle here, but you're going to have blood and body fluids, body tissue to deal with. You don't want to put your employees in a position where they have to go in and clean that up. So you're going to need to have a relationship with an outside contractor who does the cleanup and restorations, the uh, service masters, the ACTs of the world that can come in and do the cleanup and put your building back whole again without causing more harm to your employees mentally or physically. So all these different resources, you have to build relationships with them in advance so that when you call them any time of the day, any time of the week, any time of the month, you know they're going to be there for you because you've already got the relationship. Sitting down with the yellow pages and starting to flip through looking for crisis counselors at this point in the day is not a good thing to be doing. Well, thank you so much, Steve. You know, Catherine, it just boils down to what I started with. It can happen to you. We hope and we pray it never does, but the reality is it can happen any given day. A gentleman I become very dear friends with, a gentleman by the name of Frank DeAngelis, was the principal at Columbine High School when they had the shootings there April 20th of 1999. And I've gone across the country with Frank uh, doing training programs, and he's got a program on recovery, and the title of his program is Any Given Day. Because you never know. It can happen on any given day. So you've got to accept that fact. You've got to prepare for it train for it, know how you're going to move on afterwards if it does happen. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on to our show and talking about this topic. It's not the uh, most favorite topic for our audience to to hear about, but it's certainly a very important topic. Thank you so much for your work. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at CatherineShort at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.